As we continue to worship God, please turn with me to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 14. We'll be in 2 Chronicles 14 and 15 this morning. Charles Steinmetz was a brilliant scientist, a scientific mind, a brilliant electrical engineer as well. Uh, Einstein and Thomas Edison, the inventor, they were his friends. His contribution to mathematics and electrical engineering were very significant. In fact, he fostered all of the work that makes our electricity network possible. This was in the early part of the 20th century. Now, the story is told that one day, Henry Ford had a problem with one of his generators. And so his engineers couldn't figure that out, so he called Steinmetz. Steinmetz went over there, and uh, all he asked was a pencil and a notepad. That's all he wanted. So he took the pencil and the notepad, and then he started making all kinds of complex calculations. He, do, he did all of that, and then he asked them to give him a ladder. So he took the ladder, he climbed up, and on the side of the generator, he took a piece of chalk and made a mark X. He came back down and told the engineers, you go up there, remove the plate where I've marked X, change 16 winding coils, and that should work. So they went up, they did that, and the generator worked perfectly. Henry Ford was thrilled. Steinmetz went home and sent him a bill, $10,000. So Ford kind of balked at that and said, why don't you send me an itemized bill? So here was what the itemized bill said. Making a mark with chalk, $1. Knowing where to put it, $9,999. <laughs> when we're in trouble, we go to somebody who knows what's going on. About a month ago, I was driving my car from where we live in Katy, going to Spring Branch, to the church office, and I was somewhere along I-10. All kinds of lights came up on my dashboard. Uh, the ABS light, there were warnings, uh, anti-lock brake system disabled, traction control disabled. So I just decided to drive slower, uh, went into my right lane, slowed down and got off the exit and made my way to church. I mean, the car didn't blow up. <laughs> I got to the church office, parked, uh, went for my meetings and came back, started the car, there were no lights. I said, wow, this problem resolved itself. No, in about 10 minutes, it came back on. So, obviously, I took it to the mechanic. Uh, he replaced one sensor and gave me a hefty bill that was itemized. <laughs> but nevertheless, it was, it was a big invoice. When we get into trouble, we go to somebody who knows something to help. Uh, if you have car trouble, you go to a mechanic. Uh, if you have tooth trouble, you go to a dentist. Uh, if you have relational trouble, you might go to the pastor or the counselor. And uh, if you have heart trouble, you may go to a cardiologist. So when we have trouble, we go to people who know something about it because we don't know everything. So we find people. Now, where do you go when you have various kinds of trouble afflicting you? All kinds of different things. And you cannot quite pinpoint the source of all this. You just don't know where to go. All kinds of troubles uh, kind of distressing you 
in your situation. We get some hints from the life of King Asa today as we look into 2 Chronicles 14 and 15. We are in our series, Prophets and Kings. And of all the kings that we have looked at, uh, there is one thing that's a common theme so far. They all did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, that's a common theme. Take Saul. He was partially obedient, disobedient. He didn't kill the Amalekites that God had asked him to do. David, you know his story. Although he did repent when Nathan the prophet confronted him. Solomon, he knew better than to take 700 wives from foreign nations. God God had warned him about that. Rehoboam, during his time, they say Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was the king over Judah. And then his son Abijah, his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord either. So there is a theme coming along as we look at all these kings with prophets confronting them over various things. Now, of all these kings, David is singled out. Uh, in 1 Kings 15:5, we read this. David did what was right in the sight of the Lord, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. The difference with David and the others is that he repented And the others didn't. So let's look at King Asa this morning. uh, As his life is described for us. And his interaction with Azariah the prophet. And as God reminds us in Romans 15. Whatever was written in the past. Is written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures. We might have hope. So, 2 Chronicles 14 and 15, uh, as much as they are tucked away in the Old Testament, they are for our instruction, so that as we persevere and endure with the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 2 Chronicles 14, verse 1. So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and his son Asa became king in his place. So Abijah dies, Asa becomes king. The land was undisturbed for 10 years during his days. There is peace, booming economy, no bloodshed, no wars, undisturbed. A very peaceful situation for 10 years. This is kind of unusual. What was it about King Asa that, that created this kind of an environment where for 10 years the land was undisturbed and there was total peace? Verse 2. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. He did what was good. He did what was right. And what exactly did he do? Verse 3. For he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the ashram. So he removed all the worship centers of the many gods that they had. He tore down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherim. Now, what are these sacred pillars and poles? The sacred pillar made out of stone, they believed, was the residence of God Baal. And his consort is Asherah, and she would reside in a wooden pole, with carved wooden pole, beside the stone pillar. And so Asherim, which is just a plural, is many representations of his consort. So those were the two things. And what he did was he got rid of all that. 
removed all worship centers to other gods. And what else did he do? Verse 4. And commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandments. So seek the Lord, the fathers, obey what God asked them to do. Verse 5. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. So he got rid of worship of all kinds of gods, told his people, let's seek the Lord and obey him, and the kingdom was undisturbed, and there was a period of peace. So what he did was, in a, in a way, what made this peaceful time possible. God responded to his actions. So everything is going great. Now, during that time, in a peaceful time, he fortified his cities. Verses 6 through 8, we find that. Since the land was undisturbed, he built fortified cities. There was no one at war with him during those years. Why? Because the Lord had given him rest. Interesting, isn't it? The Lord gave him rest. For he said to Judah, verse 7, Let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. And we have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. So removes, foreign, uh, removes worship of false gods encourages people to live a life of obedience, and God provides them rest. He's able to prosper and flourish. Cities are built, land is fortified, and armies are built, we see in verse 8, because the Lord gave them rest. The Lord gave them rest. Let's not miss that. So all is good. And then verse 8 says he had 580,000 people in his army. So when everything is going good, now we see a test. We see a test. Verse 9, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. Million men and 300 chariots come after King Asa. All he has is 580,000 soldiers. So what did Asa do? Verse 11, Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, There is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you. And in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let no man prevail against you. So Asa calls out to the Lord when he finds this formidable army advancing against them. And verses 12 through 15 tell us what the Lord did. He basically routed the million-man army from Ethiopia. And Asa and his army plundered all the cities along the way and came back to Jerusalem. Verse 15, they also struck down those who owned livestock and they carried away large numbers of sheep and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. So 10 years, peace, everything is going great. He's got a test. He calls on the Lord. The Lord fights for him, and he's back in a peaceful situation. That brings us to chapter 15. Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him. So Oded is a prophet. It's, it's, um, it's told us in verse 8. 
told to us in verse 8. So Azariah, the Spirit of God, came, on, came, came to him, and here is what he told Asa. Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. As long as you stay with God, God is with you. And he's going to fight for you. But if you forsake him, if you stay aloof, if you remove yourself from him, then he is just going to let you go. He's going to abandon you. This is how God works. God says it is up to you to choose what you want to do. You can choose to stay close to me or you can choose to move away. Move away. It is your choice. And you can have him with you and for you in all your troubles if you stay with him. That, of course, brings us to a question. What exactly does it mean to stay with him? Well, staying with him is basically being where he is, uh, to go where he goes, to do what he desires. Essentially, it's following him. That's what staying means. And we're further down, we'll have a little more clarification of what that means. And then, verses 3 through 6, Azariah gives him an illustration of the staying and God being with them, abandoning and God being away. He says, for many days, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him and he let them find him. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to, who, or to him who came in. For many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. So he says, Israel was without the true God. There may have been many false gods. Obviously, there were false gods. But they didn't have a true God. There was no teaching priest and no law. They didn't know the law and they didn't obey the law. That was the condition. And things were so bad because, in the, uh, because it says in those times there was no peace to him uh, who went out or who came in, etc. So they were in trouble. And when they called out to the Lord, he delivered them. And uh, in 14.4, in, in we see that Asa had commanded the people to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and commandment. So the seeking God is closely tied to knowing and obeying. There were no priests. There was no law. People didn't know the law. They didn't obey the law. They were in trouble. And when they got into trouble, they called upon God and God delivered them. So, if we want to know God, then we have to look. We have no choice but to look into the scriptures where God reveals himself to us. If I want to taste and see that the Lord is good, uh, I have to be willing to obey what he says in situations, even when it is hard, and watch him at work. Sometimes situations change, sometimes my own heart changes. Either way, that's the only way I can taste and see that the Lord is good. So when we seek God, he says, he lets us find him. He's always there. It's not that he has moved away. It's not that he's taking a nap or a break. It is just that we won't see him unless we desperately seek him. 
Isn't that true of all of our lives? It's when we reach a state of total helplessness. It's when our backs are against the wall and we say, Lord, I desperately need you. I will do whatever you want. I will live exactly the way you want. When we get to that point, that is typically when we find God, isn't it? He will let us find him. He will reveal himself to us. And that's what happened to Israel. When they were in trouble, when they were in distress, they called out to God. And then we find something interesting. Um, In those times, during those dark times, they had all kinds of problems. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. People couldn't go safely anywhere. They couldn't do anything. All kinds of problems. There were wars, civil wars, strife of all kinds, leading obviously to all kinds of stress, obviously. Economic stress, financial stress, relational stress, call any kind of stress if you want. Chaos and fear, total confusion. That was the case. Now, why was that happening? Very interesting, isn't it? For God troubled them with every kind of distress. God was responsible for allowing all kinds of trouble to come into the lives of his people. God does that sometimes to get our attention, doesn't he? I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is in difficulty sometimes. It takes God that to get our attention to, uh, to pay, pay attention to him. God was troubling them with every kind of problem. So what does Azariah then tell King Asa? Because he was fine, everything. They were living an obedient life. He had removed false gods. Worship was good. What does he tell him? Verse 7. But you, Asa, be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. So he says... Look, you don't lose courage. You've been doing good. You might lose heart. Double down. Do more of what you've been doing, right? That's what he's telling them. Don't don't be discouraged. Uh, Just keep doing and turn to God. And he says, be strong and courageous. That's what he's asking him to do. And strong and courageous to do what? Verse 8. Now when Asa heard these words and the prophecy which Azariah, the son of Oded, the prophet, spoke, he took courage. Just as he said, be courageous, he said he took courage. And removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He then restored the altar of the Lord which was in front of the porch of the Lord. So he removed all the detestable idols Uh, from all of his territories, and he restored the altar. In other words, he focused on worship. He removed idols and restored the worship of God. He built the altar that was broken. That's what he did, and that's where he doubled down. And And according to what the prophet had told him, he didn't lose courage, he took courage and knocked all those things down. Now you might wonder, why does he need courage to do that? Think about it. For somebody to come and destroy what you worship and what you treasure and what you hold so valuable, 
You're going to fight with everything you have if somebody were going to take it away. It needs a lot of courage. And that's why the prophet told him, be courageous. Even though he was a king, he could do what he wanted. Be courageous and get rid of all these false gods. Now, we might say today, ah, we don't worship any idols. Um, idols are really God substitutes. God substitutes. Anything we substitute for God is an idol. Uh, John Calvin, the theologian, said, our hearts are idol factories. We just crank them out, one idol after the other. Now, so what is an idol? An idol is anything or any person other than God that we look to to satisfy our needs and our wants. Anything that we can look to to satisfy our needs, needs other than God can be an idol. Can be an idol. Because if we desperately need it and we find it here and not from God, then that's who we're going to worship and that's where we're going because it satisfies our need and that becomes an idol. Tim Keller puts it very well. He says, an idol is anything that is so central to your life that you cannot have a meaningful life if you lose it. This is so central to your life that you cannot have a meaningful life if you lose it. That can be an idol. Now, what does that, how does that play out? Uh, let's think about significance. We all have a need for significance. Uh, we want to feel significant. We want to live significant lives. We want our work and our legacy to be significant, which is good. Now, here is where there is a potential for idolatry. Where do I look to, or whom do I look to, to satisfy my need for significance? Right? That's where things get a little messy. If my significance doesn't come from God, I'm going to be in a little bit of trouble. So, if, for example, my work is the source of significance, then I'm going to put all of my energy and my effort and my time to generate a lot of work and generate a lot of good quality work because that is the source of my significance. What happens if I get laid off or I get disabled? Will my life become meaningless at that point? If it does, then that is my idol. The work is my idol because when I lose it, I lose all meaning in life. Or if my spouse is the source of my significance, then all my efforts are going to work towards pleasing the spouse from whom I derive significance to my life. So if my spouse does not meet my expectations, do I then have a meaningless life? Where is the idol? If my children are the source of my significance, my energies will be focused on shaping them to become whatever I really like and as aspire to be. Now, if my children don't turn out the way I wish they would, will I then have a meaningless life? Where are the idols? Or it could be possessions. They can be the source of my significance. What happens if my possessions dwindle in some way or disappear? Will I then have a meaningless life? It's, it's one way to kind of recognize whether something is really an idol in our hearts. Uh, there are some other simple ways of doing it. Uh, as an example, 
if I am characterized by grumbling, not an occasional grumbling, but a pretty regular grumbling, uh, it might indicate that my desire to have it my way is more important than to trust God who is orchestrating all of my situations. Remember the children of Israel, they didn't have food. I mean, they grumbled, they grumbled. That was, that was something God was not pleased with. It tells me, if I'm constantly grumbling, it tells me that the desire to have my way overpowers any desire to trust God and his sovereign ways in my life. Or if I'm characterized, let's say, by impatience. Ah, regularly impatient and get angry and lose my temper. That's, if that is my way of life or it characterizes me, it tells you that to have it my way is more important. It's the ultimate that I'm after. To have it my way is more important than to trust God and follow his lead and trust God with the circumstances. It could be an idol. Not that if you have anger, it's always an idol. It could be anger for the right thing. But if it results in manipulation and all kinds of things, then that's a different story, right? So there are some simple ways to discover what are the idols in our hearts. Asa removed the worship of God's substitutes. He took them all out. And then in verse 9 and 10, he gathers all the people. Interesting, he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who resided with them for many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. You see, when people see that the Lord our God is with us, it's got an attractional power. People come, people from other areas from the north came down to join him. So they assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year. So, his reign was for 41 years, 10 years of peace. There was a test around the 15th year. The prophet tells him he doubles down and he keeps going. What does he do? Verse 11, they sacrificed the Lord that day 700 oxen, 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought. Asa instituted the right kind of worship. That, of course, raises a question. What is worship? Is it just what we do here for an hour every Sunday morning? Uh, a well-known Bible teacher of yesteryear, Warren Wearsby, says it this way. He says, worship is the believer's response of all that they are. Mind, emotions, will, body. Believer's response to what God is and says and does. In simple words, worship is our response to who God is, what he says, and what he does. How does that play out? If God is worthy to be praised, when we praise him, we worship him. So we do that here when we gather together corporately. If God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble, when we pray and depend on him, we worship him. And that may be on a Tuesday night. If God is worthy of being obeyed, when we take him seriously and follow his instructions, we obey him. That can be all five days, seven days of the week. If God is worthy of our best, when we do our best accounting, best nursing, best firefighting, best cooking, we worship him because God calls us to do everything as unto him. So if God is worthy of our 
allegiance. Then anytime we do that, we praise him. If God has created, for example, God has created us in his image, which means he has called us to represent him. So every time we demonstrate grace, we worship him. Every time we demonstrate mercy, we worship him. Every time we demonstrate love, genuine love for the unlovable, we worship him. When we speak the truth, we worship him. God is truth. When we seek to follow Jesus, we worship him. So you realize quickly that worship is not just something that we do for an hour in church. Worship is, should be all of life. Or worship is coextensive. It spreads all over, coextensive with very life itself. So Asa instituted um, right worship. He came to God on his terms, repaired the altar, performed sacrifices, and God instituted sacrifices, as we know in the Old Testament, uh, to remind his people that without blood, there is no remission of sin. So they needed to do, to do that. The price of sin is death. Sacrifices constantly reminded his people of that. And today, God invites us to come to him because the price for the remission of our sin has been paid. Jesus died on the cross for us. God so loved the world, the familiar scriptures tell us, that is gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, whosoever believes in him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. God calls us to worship him and we can come and respond to his holiness, his love, justice, and truth. And then verses 12 through 15 to summarize, they entered into a covenant with the Lord. Uh, they made an oath to the Lord, verse 14, with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, and with horns. All Judah rejoiced, verse 15, concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly, and he let them find him. And then, so the Lord gave them rest on every side. God is the one who gives rest in response to what they are doing, instituting the right worship. They followed God and experienced rest. Asa committed to obeying God. He paid attention to what God had said and followed through with his actions. Then he went one step further. In verse 16, he removed Maker, that's the queen mother. He removed her from her privileged position because she had made an Asherah pole with an obscene image. So he crushed it and burned it. I mean, that's, that's big. And there was no more war, verse 19. And there was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. 35 of the 41 years, no war and no peace. You'd hope that he would finish well, wouldn't you? But that's not quite what happened. <laughs> In the 36th year, King Basha from Israel comes to attack him. So what does he do? The last time when a million people came against him, he just called to the Lord and the Lord took care of him. This time, what does he do? He takes all the silver and the gold and all the stuff from the treasury of the house of the Lord and goes and gives it to King Ben-Hadad of Aram and says, hey, will you help me to fight King Basha of Israel? That's what he did. And then another prophet, a seer, Hanani, in verse 7 of chapter 16, approaches him and says, because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, Therefore, the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. And then you read verse 9 in chapter 16, the familiar verse. 
For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those, those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you'll surely have wars. What a sad commentary to finish like that, isn't it? Having experienced peace and a flourishing because of obedience with the Lord. Let us not be like Asa, finishing poorly, but finishing well. So what do we learn from Asa's reign? He did what was good and right. Doing good and right started with removing false gods or God substitutes and observing the law and the commandments. He was warned by uh, the prophet Azariah. He listened to him and he doubled down. He kept doing what he was doing. He removed idols. He added instituted sacrifice, the right kind of worship, and the Lord gave him rest on every side. So there are three things that Asa did. Asa removed the worship of God's substitutes or idols. Let us check our heart for idols and remove them. Anything that we feel we cannot lose can have a grip on us. And if something has a grip on us, it can be an idol. So let's search our hearts and remove God's substitutes. Second, Asa instituted right worship. Let's worship God. Let everything that we do, everything we do, be a response to who God is, what he says, and what he does. Everything, Sunday through Saturday. Third, Asa committed to obeying God. So let's commit to obedience, even when it is hard. Uh, as we saw in God's word to Saul, uh, to Saul, he delights in obedience more than sacrifices, right? We heard that in 1 Kings 15. So let me encourage you. Here's one way uh, we can worship God this week, one of any number of ways. God is a gracious God. He has shown us enormous amount of grace, giving us what we don't deserve. So let us, for example, do this. Let us respond to God by saying, I will show grace to every member in my family through this week, giving them what they don't deserve, at least the way I view it, right? Will I show grace? And that will be an act of worship because God is worth it. That is who God is. That's what he says, that he's a gracious God. And that's what he does, overwhelm us with grace. Will we then show grace, at least one, one, one possible concrete way, to every member of our family this week? May God help us worship him and find rest in our lives. Gracious God, we thank you uh, for your word uh, that continually gives us hope the encouragement from the scriptures. Thank you for these things. I pray you'd open our hearts to receiving them and open our hearts to obeying you and following you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May it be said of our lives, this life was wholly devoted to me and I am pleased. And in turn, Lord, we pray that we will find rest for our souls. We ask these things in Jesus, our mighty Lord's name. Amen. This is a time of prayer where, where we get to respond. Uh, if God has spoken to you in some way and you want to respond, the, as the prayer team comes forward, you can come forth. People will be 
happy and willing to pray with you. Uh, there might be a specific need. There might be something of an item of praise. Whatever it might be, come forward and join in prayer with our brothers and sisters here.